All right, good to see everybody. I don't know about which campus you're at, but here at Cooper City Campus, it was a beautiful, beautiful day, wasn't it? And uh, wow, so, uh, so glad to see you guys, so glad you came. Don't forget, on Wednesday, as they mentioned earlier, it's going to be awesome, and I hope you're going to come 7 o'clock this Wednesday. I'm very, very pumped about all the neat things that are happening. Also, in case you didn't realize it, we have about a month left in our season, 2000, what is it, 2015-2016, uh, Temple Centurion Run. There's about a month left, so if you're kind of on the edge of uh, stepping into that uh, territory, um, don't miss that, you know. Be generous and see what God does in your life. Well, this is the second week in this series, and... Uh, we're going to answer four questions. I was hoping to get to five, but we're kind of out of uh, out of time. And uh, one of the questions that we were going to answer is about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do a series on that in uh, a couple of months. So rather than spend just a few minutes, we want to spend a few weeks on the role of the Holy Spirit um, in our lives. Now, if you weren't here last weekend, here's kind of the foundation about how we're answering these questions. The first thing we're asking ourselves is, does the Bible say anything about what the question is. And if it does, then we look, okay, here's what the scripture says. If it doesn't, then we say, well, is there a biblical principle that we can apply to this specific question? And then we'll apply that biblical principle. And then if there's not one, then I'll give you, uh, uh, maybe, maybe give you my opinion, I don't know. But I wanna give you the foundational scriptures for not just what we're going to talk we talked about last weekend and what we're going to talk about this weekend, but what we talk about every weekend, okay? So I want to show you this verse. It's the very first verse in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 in verse 1 says, in the beginning, what? God yeah, God created. The word created is a Hebrew word, B-A-R-A, bara, which means that he created out of nothing, ex nihilo. So we create, but we take something that already exists and make something new. God took nothing and made something. And that's kind of the foundation because if you believe that, okay, if you believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then that means that God is sovereign. That means that God therefore has the authority to speak into our lives and we ought to listen to what he has to say. Now, I believe that. I believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so, therefore, what we teach week in and week out is what this God has to say about our lives. Because he has the right and the authority to do so because he is the creator, okay? Now, we mentioned last week, the world in which he created is not the world in which we live. Adam and Eve screwed it up, didn't they? Right? But before you get mad at Adam and Eve, guess what? You screwed up too. The Bible says there are none righteous. What does righteous mean? There are no perfect people. We've all missed the bullseye. The bullseye is perfection. And so this is not the world that God created. It's a screwed up world. And the moment it happened, God stepped in and he says, my goal is to redeem the world, is to redeem you. Eventually he's going to come back and set everything in order. But is to redeem us, is to help us do life in this screwed up world until... He comes back to take us to where he is. And that's really what the Bible is all about. Now, I put that second passage of Scripture, Titus, in there, and that's basically what it says. We don't have time to read. I mean, I gave you, 
you know, your own little miniature Bible this weekend, and we don't have time to read them all, but I wanted you to have them so that you could study, maybe look into it for yourself. But I do want you to look at the last part of that, verse 15, okay? Verse 15 of Titus 2, and he, of course, Paul speaking to Titus, he says, you, he's speaking to the pastor, must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. That's what we do on the weekend, is we teach these things. What are these things? Well, it's what the scripture says. We want to look at them. He says, it's your responsibility to encourage the believers to do them, and you have the authority to correct them when necessary. So don't let anyone disregard what you say. And of course, that's what we try to do on a weekly basis. Now, I want to answer four questions that you had that you asked. Here is the first one, all right? Hi, Pastor Troy. This is Alicia from Nassau. I've been watching you for about two years. And my question today is, what is your position on Christians and alcohol and smoking marijuana? We know that marijuana is used now for medicinal purposes. So what's your take on Christians using marijuana and uh, drinking alcohol? Thanks. Appreciate your answer. She seems very calm, doesn't she? We are on television in the Bahamas as well as we do have a campus there. And I, I was thinking about, you know, the idea of alcohol and marijuana. So I, I, I brought some props with me, all right? First thing I brought is a Corona. Mm. Now, if, if, if I were to, to take a drink of this, I wonder how that how you would respond to that right some of you would be like mm, I'm in the right church okay <laughs> uh, some of you would probably maybe be a little disappointed but what about instead of that what if I were to do something a little more civilized all right mm, that's a cool sound isn't it I got some wine here and if I were to Right? You go, well, that's not how you do it. So I went to clap, right? You smell it, <clears throat> and you were to take a drink of that. And then I brought one other thing in case maybe you don't do any of the, well, I actually brought a couple more things, all right? <laughs> this is a big bottle. I can tell you after some weekends. <laughs> And again, I'm not a... Now, I don't know. Would you think different of me if I drank the first or didn't drink the first, but drank, drank, uh, what is it, absolute vodka? I mean, does it make a difference if it's beer or if it's vodka or if it's this little uh, cigarette thing I have? I really don't have that, all right? Some of you are really starting to get excited. Yes, I am. <laughs> That's why we've got food trucks this weekend, okay? Um, now, what does, I, I want us to talk about what, what does the scripture actually say, okay? Because that's the first question. Any of these questions we want to know, does the Bible say uh, anything about the idea of alcohol, the idea of marijuana, of course? And let me just give you a few things real quickly, all right? Here's the first thing. When you're asking yourself uh, this question and trying to determine what does God want you to do, the first thing I put in your outline is we have to obey the law. Right? I mean, if the, well, Romans chapter 13 says everyone must submit 
to govern authorities, for all authorities come from God, and those in position of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against God. So the scripture is clear that whatever the law says, so the law gives a drinking age, and we know, therefore, to violate that is to sin. And remember, sin is always a picture word. It means to miss the mark. And the mark is perfection. And, and, and that's why Jesus came, is because none of us are perfect. And he came and lived a perfect life, took our imperfections so we could put on his perfection. But it's, so it's a sin to disobey those in authority or to dis disobey the law. So if the, you know, there's a certain drinking age, you violate that, it's a sin. When it comes to marijuana, of course, um, you know, it's not legal everywhere. And uh, therefore, that would make it a sin. The, the other thing that, that I put uh, down there is we must obey our parents. And this is the idea of honor. Because a lot of times people have these kind of questions. They happen to live at home. Uh, Ephesians 6.1, children are supposed to do what? Yeah, obey their parents because you belong to the Lord. It's the right thing to do and honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with the promise. You know what the promise was? It's a long life, okay? So you may be past the age of drinking, but if you live under the roof of your parents and your parents tell you not to drink and you drink anyways, you know what you call that? Missing the mark. You call that sin. Because the scripture, again, is real clear on these. We're to obey the law. We're to obey our parents. Um, uh, and, you know, it really doesn't matter how old you are. If you're still under their uh, roof, if you're still living in their home, then they have authority into your life and the ability to speak into your life in those areas, according to the scripture. Now, again, I'm just going to share with you what I believe the Bible has to say because I believe that God wrote the Bible to help you win. And, and until you answer that question, whether he created the heavens and the earth, it really determines whether this is just information or whether this is uh, life-changing. Here's the third thing, is that we do know the scripture says drunkenness, on the other hand, is always a sin. All right? I, I think one of the questions, did, did they give you the questions when they came out here? We'll go for the welcome. I don't know. If you haven't down, go to the app. If you haven't already went to the app, and there are four questions that have to do with the four questions that we're answering today. And uh, it's anonymous, so I won't know who you are, okay? Nobody will know who you are. But if you haven't already done that, fill that out real quick, all right? And we'll see kind of where you came out. Drunkenness is always a sin. Romans 13, 13, because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and what? Yeah, now remember, and when, because we're talking about alcohol and marijuana, and there's, there is a difference. We like to compare the two, but there's a difference in the two. You can have a glass of wine, let's say, after dinner, and it doesn't necessarily make you drunk. And what's interesting is the Bible doesn't define drunkenness. God wants you to wrestle with that. Because he could. He could give percentage. He could have done a lot of different things to define for us where the line of drunkenness is. What God says is that drunkenness is always missing the mark. It's always a sin. And so you and I have to kind of wrestle, wrestle with where drunkenness begins. But when it comes to alcohol, you can have wine and not be drunk. But the whole purpose of marijuana is to alter your mind, is to alter the, the way that you think from what I understand. Okay? Um, I, have, I haven't even inhaled. So some of, you might, some of you might be a little bit more of an expert than myself. 
but, um, but we know that, okay? I mean, again, if we're going to honor what God says, we, we know that. Um, that drunkenness is always wrong, it's always missing the mark, it's always a sin, and we also know that when it comes to marijuana, that's the gold of marijuana, which makes it different in this way when it comes to alcohol. And that's what, and, and the fourth thing that I put down there is that we know mind-altering substances for pleasure, because there is, you're right, medical marijuana. And when it comes to the medical profession and what marijuana can do medically, I'm not talking about the guy you know, down at the beach that sells it to you if you write a prescription down yourself. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about the real thing. Mind-altering substance for pleasure are spiritually dangerous. And so whether it be marijuana or some other drug or whether it be alcohol, any of those things that alter us um, mentally are spiritually dangerous. Let me show you what I'm talking about. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be what? Be sober-minded. What does that mean? Be alert. Be awake. Don't allow yourself to be altered, to be distracted. Why? Why are we supposed to be sober-minded? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to do what? To devour. He wants to destroy. He wants to tear apart. He wants to take down your dreams, your future, your relationships, your career, and so the scripture says, hey, be sober-minded, be alert, be watchful. Because the enemy's just looking for an opportunity to find himself or a way in to our lives. And we know once he gets in, what's he want to do? John 10, 10 tells us, the thief comes to kill, steal, <clears throat> excuse me, steal and destroy. So we're talking about the spiritual realm here. I mean, we're, we're talking about... Ephesians 6 says spiritual darkness in heavenly realms. The Bible talks about demonic activity. And I don't know what all of that is, but what I do know is that the Bible says is that when we find ourselves in an altered state, we're opening ourselves up to the enemy to move into our life. And he only moves into our life for one reason, and that is to destroy us. And let me just give you an interesting text. There are lots of places that it talks about this in the Bible. But Galatians chapter 5, look at what it says. It says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry. And then what's this word? Sorcery. Now remember, the New Testament is written in Greek. This Greek word is the word in which we get our modern day word pharmacy from. Because witchcraft in the day had uh, with it this idea of using herbs and other things to create an altered state of, of people's minds and of their thinking, which again then allowed the enemy uh, into their lives. So it's dangerous. That's why the scripture says, hey, be careful. Again, God wrote the scripture to help us win. And he says we have an adversary that wants more than anything else for us to lose or to be destroyed, not because the enemy cares about you or even hates you. The enemy hates God. And the only way the enemy can get to God is to get to what God holds most precious. And do you know what he holds most precious? You and me, all right? And so that's why he comes after us. And then here's, the, I think, um, another question I put down there. Is that you have to then, therefore, when it comes to this question, you have to ask, what is the wise thing to do? Ephesians chapter 5 says, therefore, be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as what? Wise. Verse 16, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be what? Yeah, be wise. 
And how do we be wise? What does it say? How do we be wise? Understanding what the Lord's will is. Let's read that out loud together. You ready? At all of our campuses. Understanding. Yeah, he says, so be, be wise. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the wise thing to do? And then it's interesting. Right here in verse 18, he just kind of goes on. And he's not really trying to focus on alcohol here. But he says, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying something's going to control you. Something's pointing you in a certain direction. And he says, you got to be wise about this. And you want to discover what it is that God desires you to do. And you want the Holy Spirit to lead you because the Holy Spirit will always lead you towards God. It will lead you away from the ditch where our own skin, the unwise thing to do, will always lead us towards the ditch. So we want to be careful of anything that takes the Holy Spirit out of control in our lives and puts something else in control. And that's basically what Paul's saying. He's saying what controls you. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1 says... Wine produces mockers, alcohol leads to brawls, and those led astray by drink cannot be what? Cannot be wise. Now again, what is the scripture saying? It's not saying that you can't have a glass of wine. What it is saying is that you and I need to be wise about it. What it is saying is that it, is, it has the possibility of being dangerous. And that it has trapped some people. And it has destroyed some families. So I love the fact that God just kind of calls it out. And he says, I don't want you going into this blind. I, I don't want you to be surprised. I want you to know that you have an adversary. And the adversary's desire is to destroy you. And he will use whatever he can in order to do that. So what do we know? Let me give it to you real quick and we'll move on to the next question. Drunkenness is a sin. All right, we know that because we saw it in the scripture. The next, one, uh, the next thing that we know is the, that same principle is that marijuana for pleasure is always a sin because it's an altered state of mind. The third thing when it comes to alcohol in general is that that's something that you have to, to, to um, I don't know what the right word is, um, hang out with God to figure out for you because you know what your family situation is. You know what has been passed down to you when it comes to addiction. You know what your tendencies are. You know uh, whether it's something you struggle with or wrestle with. And, and, and you know that drunkenness is sin. So you kind of have to wrestle with that. And I think God likes it that way because out of that comes maturity. This is not something you just kind of get told what to do. And that area, the scripture says, don't get drunk. Don't hang out with anything that does alter um, your mind, all right, for pleasure. But, um, but when it comes to having a glass of wine or some, whatever else it is, then you have, to, you have to wrestle with that. And out of that comes a great sense of, I think, maturity. If you truly want to know, hey, what does God how do I win? How do I have a great family? How do I reach my destiny? How do I enjoy life? How do I have peace? How do I raise great kids? How do I have a great relationship with the person I'm dating? I mean, how do I apply what God's saying in his word into my life? Does that make sense? A little bit, maybe? Here's, here's the second question that we had, all right? Hi, my name is Janae Jarrett, and I've been attending Potential Church Hollandale for about three years now. 
Pastor, I've noticed that homosexuality has become a lot more acceptable um, everywhere I go, and this even includes with my personal friends. And I'm just wondering, is it a sin? And also, what does the Bible and potential church have to say about it? Thank you. All right. Before we get to that, I want to see, uh, according to the survey, do we have the sur- do you guys have the survey about uh, alcohol? Do you have that? No? Yes? Maybe? Have you ever been drunk? 73% of you have. 27% of you have. We got a different crowd this weekend than we had last weekend. All right? So it's good you were here. It's good you were here. All right, second question. What, what, what about homosexuality, right? I don't know if there is a more hot topic when it comes to our society. And again, the only thing I know to do is what I told you from the very beginning is to start with Scripture. God is sovereign. God wants the best for me. What does the Bible have to say about um, the gay lifestyle? Leviticus chapter 18, 22, the Old Testament says, Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable what? Sin. In other words, it's missing the mark of perfection because that's what sin is. That's what it says in the Old Testament. But what does it say in the New Testament? Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 says, That is why God abandoned, and you might underline that, because what does that mean? God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. Verse 27. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of their uh, sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Verse 28, since they <clears throat> thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he, and there's that word again, abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Now, I think that the scripture is clear on where it stands when it comes to homosexuality. The Bible says it's missing the mark. The Bible says that teaches that it is sexual sin. And the Bible says that God abandoned them over to that. And, and you could think of it, what that word means or what he's saying is that um, God pulled back. And so there was no longer this um, sense of God's conviction in their life. God just gave them over. They continued to rebel against. And that's one of the dangers in any area of our lives to continue to do what we desire to do, no matter what God's word says. Because God's word says that every time he nudges my heart to do something, and I kind of do what I want to do anyways, my heart, and here's the way the Bible says it, becomes hard. And so the next time when I start to do what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do, my heart's a little bit harder. God nudges me or he taps me on the shoulder and he's like, hey, you're missing the mark. I died so that you could have abundant life. This is what it looks like. You're going in the wrong direction. But if I continue to go in the wrong direction, my heart gets harder and harder. And the Bible says eventually I find myself in a place where I am no longer drawn to him. I am no longer sense the conviction that I'm moving in the wrong direction. And that is, um, there's no more dangerous place in all the world 
than to be living life within your own strength. To be trying to guide your life within your own wisdom and within your own knowledge. And if you read Romans chapter 1, that's what, what he's talking about in a lot of different areas, but especially, especially in the area of sexual sin, is that you're doing your own thing, he says. And so I'm just going to let you. That's what you want to do. Then I'm going to allow you to do that. Without, uh, and as your heart gets harder, you're not going to sense the nudge to redirect your life. And as a result, it will destroy you. Because that's what the enemy is always after. He's always after our destruction. Now, this is, I just wanted to give you an Old Testament and a New Testament place where it talked about uh, homosexuality. There are a lot of different places in the scripture. And here's what I wrote in my notes. We live in a culture where something like this would often, you know, with what the Bible says, would, you know, well, that's hate. That's hate speech. And I, and I, I really, of course, don't believe that that's the scripture is any more hate speech than a parent trying to protect their child from something they believe is going to destroy them or to keep them from um, their best, keep them from what could be best for them. Years ago, Steph and I lived in Marmaduke, Arkansas, and it's kind of out in the country. It's a farming country, and so there are lots of snakes. And Stephanie has bad history with animals. I mean, we've had possums in the dryer. We've had snakes in the bedroom. I mean, I mean, animals see her and they run in the opposite direction. But um, one day she was coming out of the door and she was standing there in the doorway and up above the door was a big snake. And it was just like, you know, I don't, that's, I don't, that's not the way a snake does, but <laughs> it was just kind of like over the door, just big black snake. And, and I didn't see it until I turned around and I saw the snake and I saw her at the very same time. And my first instinct was to say, stop. But that didn't seem like the wise thing to do is to just stop underneath the doorway. So I said, run. I didn't say why. I didn't say what was going on. I just said, run. All right. And I said it as loud as I could. And it wasn't because I was mad at Stephanie. It's just I saw the danger and I wanted her to get out from underneath it. And that is what the scripture does in all areas of our lives. And that's what it's doing here when it comes to sexual sin. God is saying, look, this is dangerous. And this will lead to destruction. And that's why when it comes to being a Christ follower, the first decision that you have to make is whether or not you believe that God really loves you and wants the best for you. If he is God, does he all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere at one time. And until you make that decision, you're going to just kind of pick and choose out of the Scripture what you desire to obey, and you're going to miss the power that it actually has in our lives. God says that when it comes to sexual sin, there is danger, and so he says run. And what's interesting is not only does the Scripture tell us that when it comes to a gay lifestyle, that it will lead in to destruction, he also predicted that our world, this would become an issue. I, I put one of the places in John chapter 7, this is Jesus is talking. He says, the world, it does hate me. Why? Why does it say it, the world hates Jesus? Why? Because I accuse it of doing evil. And the word accuse there is not judgment. It's not like pointed finger, you're bad, you're bad. No, no. It to, means to bring light. In other words, Jesus says, the world hates me. Why? Because I'm going to bring light into the darkness. I'm going to bring truth. And truth is never received very well when the truth 
isn't what we want to receive or what we desire to receive. And so, again, the scripture says we need to be careful. So what about, and I just wanted to walk through some of this, okay? What if I was born with these desires? Well, I, I think you have to, you know, and there's a lot of different science about all of this, and, and I don't see that there's a lot of need to talk about, you know, whether or not someone is born with a desire for someone of the same sex. I think you ultimately have to wrestle with the first question I brought up, which is, is did God create in the beginning the heavens and the earth? It, it, did he? And I think we have to answer the question that I put there in your outline in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Do I believe that? Do I believe that God truly wants the best for me? And do I truly believe that God loves me and that what God has written in his word is going to lead me to where ultimately I desire to go? Because those, those are, when it comes to any kind of um, the way we live our lives, how we do our sex lives, how we do our money, how we do our, all those different areas of our lives, it really comes down to that, doesn't it? Do I trust God? That's like when I told Stephanie to run. It came down to whether or not she trusted me. Somebody, in, and she, she did. She's still alive. Snake is dead. I killed it. All right. But somebody else could have said the same thing. She wouldn't have responded in the same way because she wouldn't have trusted them in the same way. And that's what it always comes down to is do I, do I trust this? Now, remember what I said in the beginning? I said this is not the world that God created. Therefore, and I said that, remember, that was part of last week when we talked about why do bad things happen if God is good. And this is what I wrote in my journal here. Is therefore, we can desire things that will destroy us. This is not the world God created. And because it's not the world that God created, I desire things that will destroy me. In other words, in, the, in Corinthians, it talks about one of those. It's food. Right? Who gave us the desire for food? Well, God did. But the Bible also says that we're not to be what? We're not to be gluttons. Uh, just a little side note here. God doesn't define gluttony either, does he? You ever notice that? He says, don't be a glutton. But he doesn't say it's, you know, it's a half a pan of brownies. You know, he doesn't. You, you have to, re because God wants you to, and me to develop a relationship with him. And that's one of the ways that we do that is by determining what those things are in our lives, trying to figure out how to apply this principle. But food is one of those things that, that while I have a desire for it left to myself, I will eat myself into the grave. I mean, that's what my skin wants to do. I'm, I'm telling you, I've never passed a brownie I didn't want to eat. I've never walked by a bag of Lay's potato chips and went, yuck. Now, I've done that for rice cakes. I've done that for broccoli. I mean, you know what I mean? I don't walk by broccoli and say, woo. You know, I, I, I don't do it. Right? So, so because, it, and because this is the world that's broken, that is true. The same is true with alcohol. Right? I mean, alcohol... And some of us have a, more of a propensity for alcohol than other folks. Some of us can set it down. Some of us can't. And it can destroy us. I grew up in a family. My dad's side of the family is very angry. They have very bad tempers. And as a result, it's caused them all kinds of trouble. I mean, um, my dad, 
my dad's dad beat him when he was um, when he was young. My dad's brother, some of them have been in prison because of their violent temper. When I was growing up, my dad was angry, and uh, there are lots of times that me and my brothers were scared or that my mom was scared. I mean, it's just, I see it in my cousin, uh, some of my cousins. So there's this heredity, and I don't know how tempers and angers, I don't know the science of all that. What I do know is that there is a, that I was born with a tendency towards anger or towards a, a temper. But I also have the capacity for peace if I deny myself and follow Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus said over and over again. And the only way I will do that is that if I believe God is who he said that he was. And I don't believe that that's not only true for food and alcohol and anger, but I also believe that that is true when it comes to our sexuality. Is it just because I desire something doesn't mean that it will not destroy me because this is a world that's broken. I don't have all the answers. I don't understand it all. I don't know the science of it all, and I don't know the biology of it all. Not when it comes to sexuality, not when it comes to anger, not when it comes to food. That's not my expertise. Some of you may know all of that. I will tell you, I believe that God is who he said he was. I believe that he loved me so much that he put on skin, he died on a cross, and I believe he's so powerful that on the third day he picked up life again and he walked out alive. And because I believe that, I am continually trying to crucify myself. That's what Paul said. And there are days when my skin wants to resurrect and it wants to do what it wants to do, when it wants to do it, how it wants to do it. And it can make all kinds of reasons and rationalities for why I should be able to do that. But that's when I go back to the scripture and I have to wrestle with myself and ask myself the question, do I trust him? And do I trust his word? Um, and, and I put this scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. And I, I, I just wanted you, it talks about running from sexual sin. But the part I wanted you to see is at the very end of it, verse 19, he says, Troy, you do not belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. So honor him. And that's a daily battle. That's a daily battle. So what should a Christian's response be? Because I know that, that um, I, I would say this, in 2013, the CDC, which is a government and agency, when uh, working through the, the Census Bureau, and they, uh, they, in 2013, 96.7% of the people who reported, reported, and this is their terminology, as straight. Less than 3% identified themselves as, um, as gay or homosexual. Now, you can argue with those stats. I mean, that's just what the CDC um, came up with. And the only reason I share that with you is because this has become such a political issue. And it's so easy to kind of get pushed into the corner of being bigoted or being hate or um, whatever other label that someone wants to affix to you or, or, or to the church. 
what is our response? Well, I, we talked about this last week, right? John 13, 34. So now I'm giving you a new command. What's the new command? That we love one another. That's not the new part. The new part is that we love one another as Christ loved us. So it's this idea of sacrificial love, real love. Now, real love, and this is the way I wrote it in my notes, also demands that I'm not afraid to share what God's word says. And the reason I'm not afraid to share what God's word says is because I believe it is the key to life. It's the reason I share it with my friend, I mean my, my kids as they've been growing up. And it's the reason as a pastor I share it with you. It's I believe it to be the key to life. So what is our response to our, to our sons, our daughters, to our friends, our coworkers who struggle? Who struggle with this sexual sin? It's the same as any other struggle that any of us have, is that we are to love, we are to encourage, we are to support, but real love demands. Well, just look what the scripture says in Ephesians 4.15. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And I believe this. I believe there are lots of times when I have spoke to my children things that they did not want to hear, and they were always able to tell when I spoke with love and, with I spoke, and when I spoke with some other agenda. And I think that you and I, when it comes to the folks in our lives that we do love um, greatly, that we, we need to speak the truth in love. Um, if we believe this, if we believe that God is who he said he was, and when I say this, I'm pointing to a TV. I don't even know what scripture's up there. What I mean is we believe that God is who he said he was and can do what he said he could do and that he wants the best and that he loves us. And so, therefore, we speak um, and share the truth. What should the church's responsibility be? Well, this is what Paul said, Ephesians 5.8. He says, you were once darkness, talking about all of us, but now you're in the light. So live your life as children of the light. Light produces fruit that consists of every sort of goodness, justice, and truth. Therefore, test everything to see what's pleasing to the Lord. So again, it's this focus on you know, what's God's plan for my life? What's God's will? What does his word have to say? Don't participate in unfruitful actions of darkness. Instead, you should reveal um, the truth about them and them being um, the actions of darkness, sin, missing the mark. And it doesn't matter in what area of life missing the mark, we have a responsibility to love the world enough to share the truth. So if someone is wrestling with homosexuality, um, when you think about what is the church's responsibility, I guess I would just say this is, I want you to know that of course you are welcome right? We're all screwed up here. Um, and we're all struggling to wrestle and uh, what is God's plan for our life? How do we live out what his word has to say? So you're welcome. You're work welcome to serve. You're welcome to be involved. We don't have um, a spiritual sheriff that, um, you know, does research on everybody's life, trying to figure out what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. We trust the Holy Spirit um, to do that. Um, but we're also going to teach 
we're going to teach God's word. That's my responsibility. And whether you like it or I like it or anyone else, I think the fact that one day I'm going to stand for God, before God for one thing, is how faithful have I been to his word. I want to be a good leader. I'm not sure that that's um, the only thing that God's going to hold me accountable to. He's going to hold me accountable to being uh, a faithful communicator of his word. So, so we trust the Holy Spirit. We're going to teach God's word when it comes to the ordinances of the church, communion, and it comes to baptism. Both of those aspects of the church are, uh, according to scripture, on the other side of transformation. And um, if someone is wrestling with sexual sin, whether it be uh, people who are living together outside of marriage, or whether it be a gay lifestyle, or whether it be, uh, you know, a, a rampant sexual lifestyle, here's what I'd say. I'd say, before you take communion, you need to do a self-inventory, because 1 Corinthians says that God takes that very, very seriously. And to be living in that vein and to participate in communion is missing the mark. And when it comes to baptism, baptism is an outward picture. It's not salvation, but it's an outward picture on the outside of what God has done on the inside and of your um, desire, my desire to follow him in that. And so, you know, um, if you're living a lifestyle that is in opposition to that, um, then I think it's missing the mark to be, uh, to be baptized because you're professing something that you're not there yet. Um, you're, you're, not, you're not there. And when I say there, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about repentance. I'm, and repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Not, a perf not perfection, but a change. And, and so I think it would be inappropriate um, for you to, 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 to be baptized if that's the direction of your life um, at this time. Um, so I, I, I don't know if you like the answer. I think it's a biblical answer. And I think that it's one that is important in the day in which we live. And I do think that in all areas of life, every single one of us come to points in our lives where we have to wrestle with what God's word says and what we're experiencing. And then we have to wrestle with how do we apply, how do we live that out? and the lives of the people we care about and the people we love. All right, let's go on to the next question. We've got a couple of more real quick. Hey, Pastor Troy Erlin from the Bahamas campus. Um, I noticed you have tattoos on your sleeves. Just wondering, what is your view on tattoos based on what the Bible says about it? And is it the same as cosmetic surgery? Also, how do you feel about plastic surgery? All right. It just gets better and better. <laughs> Cosmetic surgery and tattoos. All right. So, again, I mean, let me, what do we know? All right. What do we know? Let's talk about tattoos first since um, I have a vested interest in this one. All right. I do have a few tattoos. Okay. So, take that to heart as you hear what I have to say. All right. Leviticus 19. There's only one place that the Bible talks about tattoos. Uh, Leviticus 19, 26 through 28. You must not eat anything with its blood. You must not participate in divination or fortune telling. You must not cut off the hair on your forehead or clip the ends of your beard. 
Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put marks on yourselves. And a lot of translations say, um, do not cut your bodies for the dead or tattoo yourself. Uh, I am the Lord. And, and that's um, the only place that it speaks to it. You know, if you read this, you read before it. I mean, I, if, when the people of God came into this land, I think that God did not want them to participate in the worship that their neighbors were involved in. And he's talking about, he's talking about cutting your beard, and he's talking about your, your hair, and he's talking about, you know, what meats you eat and those kind of things, which were all part of cultic worship. They were all part of idol worship. They were all a part of worshiping um, other gods. And um, here in Leviticus, I believe that he's basically saying, you don't need to be a part of that, okay? I don't believe today that if someone pierces themselves, gets a pierced ear, pierced eye, or whatever else they might pierce, um, or if they get a tattoo, that they are um, participating in some kind of cultic worship or idolatry or, um, or any kind of idol worship. I don't believe. So I, I believe that when it comes to piercings, when it comes to tattoo, that we're really talking about the cosmetic side of it. I think that's why I lumped it with cosmetic surgery because it's like, okay, what does the Bible say about, you know, changing yourself cosmetically, okay? And whether that be an earring or a tattoo or a brow ring or makeup or haircut or, you know, other things that you get raised or lowered, okay? Um, so I think we have to ask ourselves the same, time, same question that we've asked every time. What does the Bible, what do we know? What does the Bible say? Well, it doesn't speak directly to it. It doesn't say, you know, not to get, you know, not to, you know, it's okay to get your ears pierced, but it's not okay to get, you know, your, 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 your breast enlarged, okay? It, 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 but, so we have to then look for principles, all right? Let me read 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. And I want women to get in there with the men in humility before God, not primping before a mirror or chasing the latest fashions, but doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful doing it. So there is a tension. There is a tension between neglect, right? We've all, you know, where you walk by the mirror and you never look, you know, you're just, you, so you neglect what God has given you and what God has created you, right? And you've got all these principles that talk about, you know, your body. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, and then you have the other side. You have narcissism where you can never walk by a mirror without looking, right? You're always in front of the mirror. You even carry a mirror with you. And so there is this tension. And I love the fact, again, watch how God works. He says, I want you to wrestle with this. Where does narcissism begin? Where does neglect begin? I, and so we're about out of time. So I just want to give you some questions to think about, okay? Because what we like to do is we like to differ, differentiate. We like to say, well, I mean, ear piercing, that's not that big a deal. But this over here, that's a big, big deal, you know. And whatever that is depends on maybe what your history is or whatever. So let me just give you some things to think about, okay? Some biblical principles that when it comes... And it doesn't matter whether it's a tattoo or some kind of piercing or some kind of cosmetic, you know, deal. Is it good stewardship? You say, well, that's weird. All that stuff costs a lot of money, right? I mean, some people get in a plane and travel to another country. Why? Because it's cheaper. 
Now, you know, I, I do what you got to do, I guess. But it, it, is, it, uh, is it good stewardship? So you have to ask yourself the question, do I have the money to do this? Here's the second question. Why? What is my motivation? And this is important because the Bible says that our self, we read it a moment ago, our self-esteem doesn't come from how we look on the outside. It comes from who we are on the inside. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, be careful that you're not running after all this stuff on the outside and you forget who you are on the inside. He's saying, no, no, it's important to ask the question, why am I doing this? And when it comes to certain cosmetic surgeries, okay, you have to ask yourself, what am I bringing attention to? Because we do live in a sexed up world. And you have to ask yourself, listen, am I about to have a procedure that is going to draw attention from the um, opposite sex to a certain part of my, of my anatomy? And is that why? I mean, you, and here's again, you got to wrestle with this. God wants a relationship with you, not with you through me or any other pastor. He wants a relationship with you. And he's going to hold you accountable, just like he's going to hold me accountable for the decisions I make in this area of my life. The third question is, what do the authority figures in your life have to say? You know, what do, if, you, if it's your parents, of course, right, you have to honor your father and your mother. And so it doesn't matter if the scripture says, you know what, it's okay to get this pierced or to get that tattooed or to have, the, if your parents say no for you to go ahead and do that or to cause tension in the home over that, it is sin. It is missing the mark. And it corrupts the heart. And it will lead to further destruction in our lives. I mean, these are the big ones, right? It's one of the top ten. Honor your father and your mother. And, and I think sometimes we, we, we miss that. You know, you, uh, the other family members that you have in your home, your spouse. Uh, the fourth thing is what is the wise thing to do? And we read all those scriptures in Ephesians a few moments ago that talk about what's, what's the wise thing to do when it comes to this. The Bible also says that it's wise to have many counselors. Ask other people. And then the fifth thing is, does it violate your conscience? Look at this scripture. I, I, if you haven't seen this before, Romans 14, 23. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, because th th that was their big deal. People, whether or not they should eat the meat, they could get discount meat down at the idol worship store. All right? And the question was, should they? Okay? Should they do that? And he says, but if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are what? You're missing the mark. So don't violate your, your conscience. Now, don't bring your conscience into judging others, okay, if the Bible doesn't speak directly to it. But um, don't violate your conscience. Um, and again, it's just this process of growth. It, it's this journey that God takes us on that matures us and develops us and, and so that we really know him. Not just, you see how, you see how this wrestling match, so God's not distant, you know, just up here, you know, and, and it's so far away. And, and No, no, God, do you see how in all these things he's trying to bring himself closer to us so that we can know him. Not just know about him. Let me give you the, the last question, all right? 
My name is Aaron. I've been attending our campus in Pensacola for four years. My question is about money. Is tithing really in the Bible? And is it a sin if someone doesn't quite tithe and just gives what they can? Thanks, guys. I told him earlier, he looks like somebody that would ask about money. Doesn't he, doesn't he look like an accountant? <laughs> this is an easy weekend. Sex, money, drugs, and alcohol. All right. <clears throat> what does the Bible say about money? All right. Is it important to give? Well, let's, 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 let's talk about it. What do we know? All right. What do we know? What's the Bible have to say about this issue? First thing we know, our generosity reveals our priorities. Matthew 6, 21. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you most want to be and end up being. In other words, what we do with our money reveals what we value and what we prioritize. Listen to me. This is why this is important because this is a spiritual issue and a spiritual opportunity. Don't let the enemy make it just about money. Don't let him make it about potential church. You, it's, this is important because this is an opportunity for me and for you to discover something about ourselves because money reveals what I value and what I prioritize because I will lie to myself. You know what I would tell you I value? Being in shape. You know the last time I worked out? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> because if I do tell you, then you'll know I just lied to you. All right? I want to value it. But if you were to look at my calendar, you'd know that it's not the highest value. That's what money is. God says, I don't want you fooling yourself. I don't want you one day standing before me surprised about what happens. So he says, I'm going to allow you an opportunity to discover how much you value me and what priority I am in your life. And what he decided to use is money. And I, I love this scripture. He says, and because it's what I value, he even kind of puts a little warning in here. It's where I'm going to end up. What I value is it's taking me somewhere. Right? I'm not stagnant. I'm moving in a certain direction. And, it, oh, this, I, let me give you this. I thought this was awesome, if I do say so myself. Generosity is the antidote to greed and selfishness. Now, let me show you how this works. Let me say that again. Generosity is the antidote to greed and selfishness. When you are blessed, okay, and as someone, the majority of our campuses are in the United States or even the Bahamas, you are blessed in comparison to the world, Okay? I am blessed in comparison to the world. When you are blessed, our generosity is an antidote to greed and selfishness. And here's what I mean. You either have to focus on how much is too much, or you have to ask yourself the question is, have I given enough away? Now, I don't know about you, but I really believe that it is a blessing to be able to focus on how have I given enough away? See, when you focus on how much is too much, I think it robs you of the very blessing that God even wants you to enjoy. Because you tend to feel guilty about what you have. You go on a mission trip to somewhere where they have dirt floors and they have, you know, very little food. And if you're not careful, you'll start to feel guilty about the very things that God has given you. Now, that's from the adversary. 
So what does God do? God allows us rather than to focus on how much have we given. And if I focus on how much I have given and I get where God wants me to go when it comes to the area of generosity, it's an antidote from greed. Therefore, I don't have to worry about what he's given me. I don't have to walk around in guilt with what he's blessed you with. And you see how the enemy wants to turn that around so many times in our lives? So that we don't even enjoy the things that he has given us because we look around instead of being able to focus on the things that we give. I hope, I, I, I hope, I hope mm, that was good. All right. Just mm. number two. All right. We are commanded to live generously. Matthew 5, 48. He says it. Live generously. All right. So, I mean, lots of places he says it. But that's where he says it. So again, I have to ask the question that I've asked with every one of these because they're all so hard. Is do I trust that God wants the best for me? Do I trust that God loves me? And in doing so, is that why he tells me to be generous? Because he knows that generosity will lead me to where ultimately I desire to go. But here's the question, right? What is generous? Is generous helping your family go to school? Is generous paying, you know, some, putting some money in the bucket here at church? Is generosity helping someone who's homeless in New York City? Where is generosity? Where, well, God helps us get started. He actually defines it for us. And this is what I thought was so interesting, is that when it comes to drunkenness, God doesn't define it. When it comes to modesty, God doesn't define it. When it comes to narcissism or vanity, God doesn't define it. When it comes to gluttony, he doesn't define it. There are two areas where he defines it, sex and money. Do you know that? There are two areas where God says, I'm going to draw the line for you when it comes to your sexuality. Here's the way you need to live your sex life. He says, no sex before marriage. He just defines it. He doesn't say, you can determine what sex is. He just defines it, all right? Now, and when it comes to money, it's like God created us or something, isn't it? It's, it's like he knows what we struggle the most with. I mean, what gets more people in trouble than anything else, right? Sex and money. And so God says, I'm going to help you get started in this, and he defines generosity. And you're probably familiar, maybe, with this scripture. Let's walk through it, okay? Malachi chapter 3, it's an Old Testament scripture. And we'll look at a New Testament in a moment. Uh, verse 8. He says, all right, let's get real, right? Begin by being honest. He says, let's get real. Let's put down all the rationale. Let's just get on. Do honest people rob God? You do, he says. But you rob me day after day. We asked, God, how have we robbed you? And what is his answer? <laughs> I know it's hard to read it. I know it, right? Take a deep breath. It's been a tough, tough, tough weekend. Let's just read it again. He says, how have you, how have we robbed you? Right? That's our question. God says, I've, you know why you're not blessed? You've robbed me. And I'd be just like, what? What? Come on, God, I helped the guy in the street. I did this. I did that. How have we robbed you? And what does he say? Let's read it out loud together, all of our campuses. The, the tithe and the offering. Now, it, it, he, he defines it. He does it. There's no blurriness here. The tithe and the offering. And what is the tithe? The word means 10%. It's returning to God 10% of everything he's given us. There's no blurry here. 
There's no maybe here. There's no I don't understand here. There's no I can't figure it out here. God says, I'm going to get real clear with you on this because I died so I could bless you. That's what I want to do. I want to bless you. I put on skin, and I allowed myself to get sick to my stomach at times and get tired at night and drive nails through my hands and a crown of thorn on my head, and I allowed all that to happen. Why? So I could redeem you, so that I could, you know, move you. Well, he just said it like this, so I could give you abundant life. He says, but I can't give it to you. You know why I can't give it to you? Because you're robbing from me. You don't trust me. And you know how you're robbing from me? You're robbing from me because you're not returning to me the tithe, the definition. So he just defines it. He says, here's generosity. This is, this is generosity. This is where generosity begins. It doesn't begin where I say it begins. It doesn't begin where you say it begins. It begins with the tithe, which is a return of the 10%, and the offering, which is on top of that. He says, that's how. And now you're under a curse. The whole, the whole lot of you. Listen, guys. I, I can't tell you how hurtful it is to know that some of us have struggled for years financially and we don't understand why. You're making more money today than you used to make. You've got a better job today than you used to have. And yet you're still struggling financially. God says, here's why. I mean, I'm not telling, I'm just, here's why. That, you're under a curse, the whole lot of you. Why? Because you're robbing me. Because you're not trusting me, basically. He says, so let's fix it. Bring the full tithe. Bring the full 10%. Where? To the temple treasury. To the, remember we talked about the value of the church last week in great detail. So that there will be ample provision in my temple. And then God says, I know you're going to struggle. I know you're going to struggle. I know it's difficult. I know life is hard. I know money seems to be in short supply. So test me. Just test me. Test me for three months. I mean, he didn't give us a timetable. You'll have to wrestle with him in that. But test me, you know, and see, see if I don't open up heaven itself to you and pour out a blessing beyond your wildest dreams. He says, and not only that, for my part, I'll defend you against the marauders and protect your wheat fields and vegetable gardens against plunders. And remember, the, the, the farming, that's how they made their living. And don't we need that in 2016? What's he saying? I'll protect what? Your job. I'll protect the way that you provide for yourself. And I'll protect you from those who are trying to take my provision away from you. That's why you can have peace in the midst of all the crazy things that are going on um, in our world. All right? Number four. I'm almost done. Almost done. Generosity is always rewarded. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. The world of the generous gets what? Well, I know, come on, the world of the generous gets what? Yeah, the world of the stingy gets what? The one who blesses others is what? And those who help others are? So generosity is always rewarded. Now, last thing. Our giving, therefore, must be intentional. Paul is receiving an offering. And I, as I read this, I want to ask you this question. Does this sound like 2016 or what? Does this sound like, you, you know, me? All right? I mean, listen to preacher Paul. He says, it's necessary, it's unnecessary for me to write to you about this service for God's people. What's Paul say? I really don't need to talk to you about the offering. Verse 2. 
I know you are willing to help. You know what? I brag about you to all the Macedonians saying, Greece has been ready since last year. And you know what? Your generosity, your enthusiasm has motivated them. But, look at, look, look at what he says. But, you know what? I really don't have to do this. But, I'm sending the brothers. <laughs> that can be a little scary, couldn't it? I'm sending the brothers. So that our bragging about you in this case won't be empty words. So that you can be prepared. In other words, don't you sense there is a little bit in Paul that he's just not sure they'll keep their word? He's not sure that all their talk about generosity will actually result in generosity? He says in verse 4, If some Macedonian should come with me and find that you aren't ready, we, not to mention you, I mean, we'd all be embarrassed as far as the project goes that we're receiving the offering for. That's why I thought it was necessary to encourage the brothers to go to you ahead of the time and arrange in advance the generous gift you had already promised. There's intentionality in giving. He says, I want it to be real gift from you. He says, I, I don't want, look, 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 I, this is, look at the scripture. I mean, I just feel this. He says, I want it to be a real gift from you. I don't want you to feel like you're being forced. What I mean is this. The one who sows a small number of seeds will reap what? A small crop. And the one who sows a generous amount of seeds will reap a what? He says, everyone should give whatever they have decided in their heart. They shouldn't give with hesitation or because of pressure. Because God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Now, what does all that mean? Why is that important? It's because why does God love a cheerful giver? Because it's only a cheerful giver that understands they can trust God with their money. See, when you and I give without, without joy, it, it means we're giving without faith. We're giving without confidence that God will keep his word and he will do what he said that he would do. This is verse 8. God loves a cheerful giver. God has the power to provide you with more than enough more than enough of every kind of grace. That way, you will have everything you need. Does that sound good? You'll have everything you need always and in everything to provide more than enough. I don't know how else to say it except to say that what Paul was telling them, he is saying to me and you. The question comes down in all four of these is do we trust him? Do we trust him? Do we trust him when it comes to the decisions about what we're going to, to, to do uh, when it comes to the habits of our lives? Do we trust him when it comes to the sexuality of our lives? Do we trust him when it, when it comes to the, uh, the, the way we treat our bodies? And do we trust him when it comes to our giving? I just think, I don't know what campus you're at, I don't know where you're sitting, but there is one thing I am greatly confident of. God wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. To know him, not know about him, to know him. And so he takes us on this journey, and ultimately every one of us will decide what we do in every one of these areas. Would you bow your head? Father, I pray that you would use your
your word. There's a lot of information, a lot to think about, a lot to apply. I pray that you be glorified. I pray that we could say like Paul did, I am crucified with Christ. Pray I again. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Take a deep breath. Wore you out today. All right. I'm going to ask our ushers to come, and we're going to have an opportunity to give as we do each weekend. As they mentioned earlier, if you filled out that communication card, we'd love to know that you were here. Start a new series next week. We're going to talk about um, life and and uh, talk about the, the, the reward, really, or regret. Live in a way that ends in reward or regret. It's going to be a great series. One of the things I'm most passionate about. I hope you'll come. I hope you'll bring somebody to Saturday. You know, kidnap them, bribe them, do whatever you got. We need some Sunday people to move to Saturday and be as spiritual as you are. Okay? So uh, get them here however you can. Let me pray for our giving and uh, pray that we'll trust Him and be generous. Help us to trust you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give together.